Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Aaron Wiseman is a family physician, life coach, speaker, and podcaster, and has a unique educational setting in rural Indiana, which has allowed her to broaden her clinical practice in many fascinating ways. And we're going to discuss how some of those ways can impact the educational setting. Dr. Wiseman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. An icebreaker I like to start with is, what is the funniest or scariest thing that you've ever seen in the hospital setting? Well, I don't know about ever seen, but one that I can think of just off the top of my head that's happened within the last like year or so. So I was doing a shift in the ER and kid came in and the nurse came out of the room after she was treated. She's like, oh my God, Dr. Wiseman, this kid has a knife in his foot. And I was like, what? A knife in his foot? How did this happen? And so, you know, kind of hustled up in there and I was like, well, is there blood everywhere? She's like, no, he's still got a shoe on. He stepped on it. And I was like, what? He was playing with a pocket knife and he stepped on it and it went through the sole of his foot into his foot. She's like, yeah. And I was like, there's no blood. She's like, no, there's no blood. And I was like, okay. So I go in there, I get the story, I see the kid. He's obviously not in like acute trauma. We don't need to like get our surgeon down there right away. And I'm like, well, can you feel your foot? Like, you know, trying to do an exam. Of course, you never take a knife out if you don't know where it's at. Like that's key number one for anybody who's listening. So I was like, okay, let's go shoot some portable films and like see what we're dealing with, like, and try to identify it. So did that. The radiology tech came out and says, hey, Dr. Wiseman, you want to look at these films? And I was like, yeah. So I pulled it up on our computer pack system and looked at it. It was between his first and second toes was not in the skin. So what I did is I walked in there and just pulled the knife out and his parents were like, <gasps> and then took his shoe off. And I was like, dude, it just went through your sock. They were <laughs> so pissed because they had an ER visit out. And I was like, it's okay. Like at least you came in that sort of thing. But needless to say, when I heard knife in somebody's foot, I have to say that I definitely was a little bit scared in that situation. So that's, I guess my both most funniest and scariest thing that's happened to me here recently. The nurse walks in saying that you're automatically thinking it's in the actual foot, but I guess with the shoe on, you can't tell. So, wow. Good thing it didn't go in the foot then. I could have, yeah, been much worse. (laughs) Well, all right. Can you explain a little bit more about your rural setting and how that affects your practice and, and the clinical setting as well? Sure. So just given a little background on me, I am family medicine boarded. I got out of residency in 2014 and I went straight into community outpatient family medicine office where I did um, nursing home rounds, but I was not doing any inpatient rounding because the closest hospital for us is There's one about 30 minutes away, but like the big hospital where you go is more like an hour away. And so I had loved OB through my training, but I just knew I wasn't going to relocate my family to be closer to the hospital. And at that time I had two kids. And so I gave up the OB. So I was just doing outpatient essentially at that time. 2014 also happens to be the worst year of my life. It was when I finally hit rock bottom and realized that I was burned out. 
probably started as a medical student or resident. You guys can hear about that story later on. But needless to say, I needed to make some career changes. So um, I worked three years at that office and then um, transitioned away. And to get out of a a non-compete, which that's one bad thing about rural medicine is your non-competes tend to be a little bit bigger as far as when it comes to mileage. I jumped over to emergency medicine for a year to get out of that family medicine restrictive clause. And then after being in the ER for a year, I decided, hey, I wanted to try some other things. And so did some virtual medicine, did some correctional medicine. And actually currently what I'm practicing is I am the medical attending at a small geriatric psych hospital and I do rounding there each morning. So that's kind of like where I've been. It's been interesting because of what I thought I would always do to where I am now is two totally different pictures. And so I just encourage your listeners to just keep that in mind that maybe what they're picturing right now will not be the reality and that's okay. That's perfect. Wow. So many different experiences there. Family, OB, geriatric psych, and you also run a lot of your own uh, micro and histology, don't you? Which might not be too common in a lot of uh, private settings and community settings. Well, when I was, yeah, when I was in an outpatient setting, I would definitely do like my own wet preps and that sort of thing. So I definitely, I love getting the microscope out and looking at it. I did a little bit of work when I was in residency, like looking at different histo and that sort of thing. I didn't do as much, hardly any that when I was out into practice, but I even got to use like some of my like surgical skills. There's a bunch of lack repairs that I did in the office and taking like small little I say small, but they're kind of bigger. And <laughs> I think about it, some lesions, some lipomas, that sort of thing out in the office that uh, maybe should have went to a surgery center. But my patients being in a rural setting, they're like, can you just take this off, doc? Like, just just fix this. Or they like walk in and their hand or arm is like slice open. They're like, I'm not going to the ER. Dr. Wiseman will fix me up. And so it's really interesting. I grew up in a rural area, so I totally understood how this population is. I mean, they're salt of the earth. And so it wasn't a surprise to me when that kind of that stuff comes in. But it it is one of those things that it really is, you, you've got to just like flow with it. And that's where I found most of the challenges in family medicine is like, I was in an employed position. So it was very, productivity was like highly hammered, but yet that's not what my population needed. I needed to have space. So when a mom walked in like and said, hey, Jimmy fell down at school today. Can you check him out? We're not going to drive an hour to urgent care because they're going to be closed by the time we get there. Like, what do you think? Can we handle this tomorrow morning going to, you know, the big town or whatever? So, so yeah, it brings a totally different flavor than being in an academic setting. Yeah. It seems like a lot more variety, a lot more autonomy and I can totally understand the patient's point of view. I don't want to drive an hour each way to go to the big hospital when, you know, just handle it here and probably a lot cheaper doing that. too. Their perception is you can handle it, but then sometimes you're just like, holy shit. No, you've got to go see the hand surgeon because you've sliced through every fucking tendon in your hand. (laughs) Oh boy. Uh, Yeah. That could be a little extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when I called, I threatened to call that gentleman's wife and the ambulance if he continued to refuse to go. So that's when you, that good old form girl in me has to come out and I got to start really pushing on people because they do, they think you can handle everything. And in some circumstances you like figure it out, but 
man, like, and I mean, I did residency at a community hospital. I wasn't at a huge academic center. So, I mean, I felt adequately prepared, but it's different. It's totally different. You know, you read your own EKGs and probably a cardiologist isn't going to read that EKG. Even if you send it electronically, you're at the bottom of the stack. They may read it the next day or the day after. So you've got to look at it and be like, am I dealing with an acute issue here? Because otherwise, you know, the kind of shoulda, coulda, maybe I'm not sure you tell a patient that they're not going to want to load up in an ambulance and go get shipped out if you're not like on it. So there's a, there's a weight that kind of goes with that. And it took me several years to kind of work through that myself, you know, in the buzz right now in the media is imposter syndrome. And sometimes that does creep in, especially in the rural setting when you're the highest level of education and there's not some specialist just down the hallway where you can be like, Hey, what do you think about this? Wow. Great points. It probably is a little bit scary then. You are the top of the food chain when it comes to some of these decisions and just knowing what to do, sort of being responsible for the outcomes. Is it due to the rural setting that has also sort of allowed you to explore other aspects like speaking and the podcast and all these extracurriculars that you do? Absolutely. You know, my podcast started out of selfish ambition. I'm the only female physician in my county, and I wanted to talk to other women doctors. I miss that camaraderie. And so that was one of the reasons I started my podcast, Doctor Me First, so I could invite other female physicians on and just have conversations. You know, I mentioned that 2014 was the worst year of my life. I was leaving medicine. I was done. I was like Googling how to turn my CV into a resume. Like my husband was just begging me to give it six months so that we could at least like build up an emergency emergency fund for my loans and that sort of thing. And I found a physician online who was helping other doctors. So I started working with her and actually she was a life coach. And after working with her for about six months, I was like, where's all the like young doctor life coaches? Like we needed this shit yesterday. We needed this like day one of med school. And so that's when I went and got training and I started my own life coaching business in 2015. And because I'm in a rural setting, I mean, I really heavily had to rely on, you know, virtual meetups with other doctors. Besides me, there are three other doctors in my county. So there's four of us total. And one of them is getting ready to retire. And so the population is about ready to drop by 25%. And so I knew that doing this, I was going to have to really get outside of my territory, so to speak, and move. So that was part of it too, that I had to integrate that into my medical practice that I knew like I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to help physicians and medical students and residents with life coaching because I had experienced how powerful it was. But there was definitely challenges with that because of my location. I mean, I think the rule definitely helped with it because it motivated me into isolation to see that I needed other people. But then it's also been a hindrance as far as like with travel and and getting places. Out of curiosity, if there's only four physicians in your county, how large is your county or population wise? About 13, 14,000 people. Okay. So yeah, that's about one per four-ish thousand people. That's quite a bit. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. And I mean, we're totally underserved. We need more. And it's just, it, it, that's one of the struggles with rural medicine. I mean, it's beautiful here. I love living here. My husband farms in this area. We're raising our children. Um, and so, I mean, there's those, those perks with it, but you have to be a certain personality type to not be able to get to the grocery store for about 20 minutes. You know, you can't just drop in around the corner or, you know, we have places to eat, don't get me wrong, and they're super good, but there's no Target. Like, I've got to go an hour to Target. But they have gotten better with our Amazon drops. So it's not always two-day, but we're getting really close on that too. <laughs> Well, good. That's a very important aspect of modern day living. Got to have that Amazon shipping. 
So getting into the rural setting and explaining to the audience if this might be something that they're looking at pursuing in the future, there are not generally a lot of rural clinic experiences that they can do. All the academic settings are, for the most part, in the city. So I know you take on a lot of different students or have in the past. Well, I would almost challenge that thought. Okay. I think there are a lot of opportunities in the rural setting. You just don't know about them as a student, unless you have a direct connection or, you know, you know, somebody who rotated there and they can tell you about it. I mean, there's a lot of people practicing that maybe don't have a close connection with a university setting. And that's why you don't know about them. I think many times I can think of my preceptors who were not, who were outside of the, the local hospital. They like love to have some new blood in their clinic. They loved it when they got a student or, you know, somebody who could like lend an extra helping hand in that. So I would say the challenge is not that there's not the availability. The challenge is making the connection and finding that availability. Okay. That's a great point. Then do you have any advice for finding that? Yeah. Network, network, network. That's the the name of the game when it comes to setting up rotations. Talking to people who are a couple of years ahead of you that maybe did a rotation that you know of. Of course, using your own network. If you, you know physicians in a certain area, then getting a hold of them, talking to them. It's amazing what you can find out in Facebook groups. Getting in physician Facebook groups or medical students or Facebook groups to find out like, hey, I'm looking for a rural rotation and seeing what you can find. Because anybody recommend maybe what you did or a physician that you'd be willing to contact me with and asking for a mutual connection, having that person say, this is medical student Smith. This is Dr. B. I would like to introduce you two together because then that makes it a little bit of a more closer touch as far as with that. And I feel better as an attending physician if the student who is connecting me, I have a good connection with. It's kind of all about who you know. Other things to look forward to, get on LinkedIn. There's a lot of us doctors who are on LinkedIn. And typically I find people who are more proactive and on social media and engaged are also really engaged in education and want to be a part of that. And the caveat from that too is if you're going to set up these rotations and you're going to meet somebody new, you're going to have to have really good communication skills and you need to show up being a rock star to said locations. You're not just there to like hang out in the woods and go hiking every day. I mean, you're there to learn and they have taken invested interest in you to help you learn. Because I think sometimes people think like rural rotation is like a vacation month. Actually, I've had a I can think of two different students who kind of did that to me. And I'm like, hell no, we work just as hard as in the hospital. And so just keeping that attitude, it may be a different environment. You know, we may wear blue jeans and flip flops or whatever. It's a little bit different, but the work is still there. And that's to me, one of the most important things when I'm precepting somebody, I honestly don't care how much your IQ is. I don't care what you scored on your, your different tests. I really want to know that you're interested in learning and that you care about my patients that you're helping take care of because you're part of the team when you come into my office. Great points. And then, yeah, the differences that there might be within the rural setting or uh, city setting, I guess, are things that most students are not going to be aware of. So they might think, well, it takes me a lot longer to get to and from this rotation than normal. Maybe it is going to be an easier one. Maybe the patient load is going to be less per day. So it can be an easy one, but really depends on, I guess, forming between the preceptor and the student that expectations ahead of time and figuring out what needs to be done and what the preceptor expects in that setting. And I think that's one of the best things you can do as the student is just to ask, what are your expectations? Because a good preceptor is going to be able to tell you that. And just a quick reminder for everyone. 
Our sister company, Find A Rotation, will be coming out with their app sometime this winter, most likely. So go to findarotation.com and save that in your browser settings. Also, if you do not listen to the Medical Nemonist podcast, my other show, we are starting a book giveaway for our book, Read This Before Medical School. It'll be going on for the next several weeks, and you can access the giveaway by going to book.freemeded.org giveaway. With this link, you'll be able to earn free raffle tickets to earn your own copy of Read This Before Medical School. Again, that is book.freemeded.org giveaway. Are there any types of maybe best practices or anything to prepare for rural rotation that maybe wasn't necessary for their past rotations if they've already done some? You know, I don't really know. As you're asking that, I'm like, well, you need to like bring all of your accessory brains, be that on your phone or your handbooks, you know, and of course bring your stethoscope and that sort of thing. But it's just, I don't know how I could say it would be different because really you never know what that day is going to bring. Keeping an open mind, I guess, would be a great way to do it. And as opposed to some other settings where you might have a particular book or a website or something that you look at, skim through before starting the rotation, this is possibly going to encompass so much more. It might be difficult to give a single resource or a single bit of advice. Yeah, here's a for instance. So one time I had a student with me and um, nurse was busy and I'm like, hey, I need you to do a get up and go test on this patient. So it's like to evaluate like falling and gait and that sort of thing in the elderly population. And he just kind of looked at me like, what? And I'm like, okay, Google what it is, go in the room and go do it. So not that I like to do that to students, but I like to see their adaptability to be like, okay, because I had another student I did the exact same thing to. He took 20 minutes doing research. And I'm like, no, Google search it, go do it with the patient. Tell me how you did it and it'll be fine. And so I think sometimes people get so caught up in the details of like doing it perfectly. Perfect is not in existence. It is not part of this world. Many times in, in my setting, it's about getting the work done well. Not perfect, just well. So sometimes it's where you do just kind of have to have the plunge and just walk in. Of course, if you're not ready and you know like you're getting ready to do a big procedure that could potentially hurt somebody, I would want to know that. But for a simple like get up and go test or checking somebody's vitals, just jump in, try it, see what happens, fumble around a little bit. And then the next time you do it, it'll be a lot smoother. So that might be a good opportunity to throw in the one minute preceptor model and maybe how you have used this in the past in your environment. So the five steps, the first one being get a commitment. How do you generally go about that with students that are rotating with you? I'll tell them what I need them to do. Um, let's take it for instance, like I want them to go see the next patient and I will ask them, you know, either do you understand or are you okay with this? And then kind of mixing the next couple together since I find that separating them out is great for the student, but when a preceptor is explaining these, they all kind of happen together and that's probing for evidence, reinforcing what was done well, and then guiding about errors and omissions. So I typically like a student, even when they're in a rule setting, I still want you to give me a good presentation. So this is a 78-year-old white female. She presents today to the office for a routine follow-up after you changing her insulin two weeks ago. I still want that information. I still want it presented well. And that also then shows me you looked at the patient's chart, you saw what she did last time, you know why she's here, and you've gone into the room and seen the patient for that. And so I really, I like to give kudos, like you did this really well, good exam, that sort of thing. So I love that part of the model. And then the other thing I think with giving guidance, it's more about showing a learning opportunity, like, hey, next time you can try this rather than pointing blame and bringing shame on that person. 
Yeah, that is another common theme is the blame and shame model that's been, I guess, pretty prevalent in in medicine for many years. So trying to get away from that is great advice for anyone trying to be a preceptor plans to in the future, I suppose. Are there any particular attitudes or actions that you feel make a good preceptor or maybe less safe preceptor from a rural standpoint? You know, I can only speak from my perspective. And I know when I'm on my A game when I'm taking care of myself, when I'm sleeping well, when I'm managing my own mindset work within my head. I know I'm a better preceptor. I'm just a better person to work with in general. So I would say potentially for an unsafe preceptor would be one that is burned out or is a little bit crispy around the edges, not quite totally burned out because they're not taking care of themselves well, even though they may or may not have awareness into that. So they may not be the best in guidance for that student. Are there any particular maybe mistakes or learning experiences you've seen in the past, something that really stands out that taught you something significant? I hate it when preceptors just jump down people's throats and just totally berate them, shame them. It's been done to me and I hate the feeling. I hate when colleagues of mine, residents, medical students, when I was working with them, when it happened to them. And I just don't think it's acceptable moving forward. And I know that's a really hard position for students to report, but there has to be some action around this. This is not business as usual. This is not how we should continue educating. We don't eat our young. We need every single person in medicine and to help them find their fit. And even maybe if you're on a rotation that you know, like, hey, I am never doing OB. Like we need to give that space to still allow people to learn without shaming them. And I think the problem is, is too many attendings, too many preceptors are so in love with what they do. It almost feels like an internal wound to them when their students don't adapt that same thing. But I think that just shows an issue with that preceptor that they need to recognize that every student is not going to have the same ambition and passion they do for their subset of medicine. And that's probably one of the most common things to see is a student might, even if they don't ultimately pick that as their profession, as a specialty, they might go into rotations thinking, I want to do this. I don't want to do that, that, or that. So it feels like that conflict between them and the preceptor probably starts really early and that can affect the entire rotation. You know, my experience too is a little bit different. I felt like almost like a faker on different rotations because I felt like I had to pretend and fake my way through the rotation and try to act interested and ask questions and all of that kind of bullshit. I hope moving forward that we can just be honest and say, okay, here are the key things that you need to learn about this specialty. These are the key skills that you need to be able to walk away from this month. It doesn't matter if you liked it or not. Your grade is not determined on how eager you are, because I always felt like I just kind of had to play that part so that I could get through that rotation. And I mean, I understand it. Like I've had people rotate with me who like, they're not down with family medicine. That's okay. But I just try to clearly outline, there's some things that you really need to do really well. Like assessing a patient, I don't care what specialty you go into. You need to be able to assess a patient. Sick, not sick, what are your findings? And once I know that about a student, that's what we work towards. Now, of course, if they're really into it, yeah, I'm going to show them some other like cool nuances. And I probably would show that to a student who's not as interested too. But I think that's just really clearly as we move forward in medical education, we need to make it less about that perceived interest and actually more about hard, tangible outcomes and goals. 
Actually, that's a great point. Yeah, the opposite side of the spectrum. And I think a lot of students read you know, blogs and have advice from their academic advisors and get one of the two stories, either go in there, be honest ahead of time that you might, that you're currently not thinking about this specialty or go in there and tell every single doctor that you love it and look for the best letter of recommendation and really kiss some butt. And <laughs> I guess uh, those two different philosophies can differ greatly on how a student approaches the rotation and, and what kind of relationship they're going to start off with, with the preceptor. It's hard. I want to acknowledge that to everybody who's out there. It's really hard to balance that relationship dynamic. Agreed. There's another question that most students have, and that's regarding letters of recommendation. And There's a lot of conflicting advice about that as well. So what are your thoughts on that? Or how should a student approach you if they wanted a letter of recommendation? I mean, I think it starts with a conversation. I don't want to just get like a random letter email like, hey, can you write this for me? Like I want to sit face to face with them so that I can have an honest and open conversation about it. Because if I feel like I can write a good recommendation letter for them, then I'm going to be able to tell that. I'm also going to be very honest and tell them if I don't think I'm going to be able to write a good one for them, so then they can perhaps seek other sources. So I think it really sits down and having that hard conversation face to face. I think a lot of this advice is going to be useful. Are there any particular mistakes you've had students make during rotations with you besides not being interested? Anything that stands out that future students should be aware of? I'm not going to say like not being interested is a mistake. I think you can still do a good job on a rotation and not be like over the moon about it. The biggest mistake I see is being underprepared and being very rigid and unable to accept that you have a shortcoming and you need to learn something different. You're there to learn and you're and that's the expectation at least for when I have a student. You're going to make mistakes, you're not going to know all the right answers. You're going to fumble and bumble around. As long as you're able to show growth from the beginning of the rotation to the end, I feel like that's success. However, if you are pushing me every time that we're discussing a topic or you want to challenge me, as far as like, well, that's not how such and such does it. We're going to have a little bit of problems together because then that shows me that you're not willing to learn. And hey, I'm here to tell you the things I learned in medical school. There's so many of them that are no longer applicable now. And I graduated medical school in 2011. So I'm not even 10 years out yet. So you've got to have that adaptability to say like, I don't know everything. I'm not going to know everything. I'm going to do the best job that I can. And I'm going to continue to try to keep learning. So I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. Another one too is I don't even care about personal appearance. It's just the perception of sloppiness with your work, with what you do. Like I said, I don't care if you have long purple hair, whatever. That doesn't matter to me. You can have neck tats and little tear tattoos on your eye. I don't care. It does not matter to me. But what matters to me is that when you when it comes to the clinical role, how prepared are you? Are you super sloppy and all over the place? Because if you're like that in your presentations, you're probably like that internally in your brain. And you have to kind of have a system as you're working through things. I'm surprised the purple hair and neck tattoos wouldn't cause any problems. I can see what you're saying. If they're outwardly messy, then they're probably not going to have a set process for their clinical approach and diagnostic steps and et cetera. So getting to the end here, some really interesting points you've made. I kind of have been jumping around all over the place from the normal setup, so I apologize from that. But I like to end it with a personal question. You can choose one or both of these. But the first one is, is there anything that you would have done differently in your education or career? Or second one being, there's one dream that you would like to see happen in medicine in your lifetime, what would it be? 
I love both of these questions, so I'm going to answer both of them. So the first one, is there anything differently that I would have done in my education or career? Absolutely. 100% absolutely. The biggest one that I can, that comes to mind right now is for me, again, having the adaptability to say, this is what I'm going to try right now. And if it doesn't work out, then it's okay. I'm not a failure if I don't stay at this office for the next 35 years of my life. Because when I realized that I was burned out and that I needed to make changes, I was devastated because I thought I had failed. I thought I had wasted hundreds of thousands of dollars practically my whole 20s to become a physician. And then once I got out, I hated it. I felt empty. I even asked myself, am I broken? Like, is there something wrong with me? And I wish that at that time, someone had talked to me like I'm talking to our listeners now to say, hey, life is a journey. You never arrive. You're going to keep adapting. You're going to keep changing. If the goal that you had when you were a 10-year-old kid about being a family medicine doctor in a rural setting doesn't work out, it's okay. And then number two, what is the one dream that I would like to see happen in medicine? My dream is that we change the culture of medicine so that it is a sustainable career for all physicians. And primarily, I focus a lot on female physicians, you know, and God love my sisters in medicine who are of a different background, who aren't white, you know, my brown sisters, because they have it even worse. And we know statistically So that's my dream. And that's what I'm living towards. That's why I'm doing my life coaching, my podcasting, my consulting, is that we can change healthcare, not just for the quality of our patients, more so for the quality of our physicians. Those are both great. Thank you so much for sharing. And then for resources, obviously we have the Dr. Me First podcast. You also have truthrxs.com. Yeah, truth prescriptions, because I love to hand those out. Can you tell? (laughs) So would those be great ways to reach out to you? Are there any others that you would suggest? Yeah, I love hanging out on Instagram. So come find me at TruthRxS. And I love LinkedIn. So come find me at Aaron Wiseman DO. Those are the two places that I'm hanging out a lot. I love talking with any and everybody who is in healthcare because I really feel like together we rise and there's no shame here. I feel like reaching out and talking with someone maybe a little bit more seasoned. I don't have your answers, but I sure shouldn't can ask you questions and help you in your journey with that. So I offer what's called free colleague to colleague calls. I'd love for any of your listeners who just want to get on a call and talk a little bit more to jump on there with me. Awesome. Any parting thoughts for students? Keep hanging in there. Keep your vision in mind and remember it's okay to pivot. What about any physicians that might be going into rural setting as a preceptor? For all my docs that are out in the world, I just ask them to be aware of where they're at in life. If they're getting a little crispy with burnout, if they're not loving what they're doing, that they need to make some changes themselves. And you can love your life and your practice. It's absolutely possible. So I would just encourage them to step back and look at that situation and maybe come talk to me as a coach so I can help you out. Great. Love the coaching that's uh, available to everyone and just so much great advice there. Dr. Aaron Wiseman, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your advice. Absolutely. It's my total pleasure. I'm just so glad that we found each other on LinkedIn. Me too.